Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Hurry Kondabolu is really funny, which is important because he's a stand-up comedian, but his material is also really thoughtful, especially when seen through the lens of a man who grew up in New York with South Asian roots. And he's now a father, a topic covered in his new comedy special and album, Vacation Baby. And that's where we started off. Most of the time was just spent, was us spent alone in an apartment, uh, you know, watching The Wire, which I had not seen, which is very embarrassing. Um, Nothing says the experience of having a baby like The Wire. Right. (laughs) I mean, it was, I mean, you know, having a child during the pandemic, I mean, it was a terrifying experience because, you know, if you remember those early days, it was like, okay, we got to put, you know, we got to use cleaning chemicals on all our groceries because we don't know what's what happened with the packaging. But will the will the chemicals breathing that in hurt the baby? Like it's like the paranoia of anybody who's having their first kid, uh, plus the paranoia uh, of anyone who's going through their first global pandemic. Mm-hmm. So you add those two things together, and you know, we were we were out of our minds. And you know, then the thought after going through all that, we moved to San Diego and. Um, and then back again, you know, then the thought was, okay, now what have we brought him into? So it's, it's just, you know, I think parenting is always from what what I've heard, uh, is, has always been a, a stressful endeavor, um, has always been something that leads to sleepless nights and the constant paranoia and anxiety, but you enter a world with nuclear weapons, global warming, uh, my uh, global pandemics, uh, AI. Like, will he? Will he? Will he be replaced before he gets, you know, into college? <laughs> is there going to even be college? Like, there's. This is uh, you know, there's always a generation gap between the parent and the child, but the gap is so much bigger now that I'm like, yeah. I, I just I don't even know. Like, how am I supposed to be able to? to relate to him and how do I, you know, stay calm when I'm scared to death. What I really respect amongst the many things about you and your work is that you've taken this life cycle event and you've turned it into comedy in your latest comedy special in trying to get the metaphor right, or (laughs) or not just right, but have the metaphor be funny. And so you threw out the special without giving it away you talk about having a baby during a pandemic is fill in the blank and you're kind of seemingly working it out there on stage. Yeah. I mean, one thing that audiences love, you know, when, when they're on board is, Oh, he's trying to figure something out. We're part of the process. So basically I liked, I always liked that when I worked on new material. So I just decided to fake it. I feel like it, it does add a moment of potential spontaneity also, you know, the, the hour is about having a kid during the pandemic, but I also was aware of, you know, it can't be a complete hour of that since like, you know, the, by the time the thing came out, like so much of the, the heart of the pandemic was was passed and we weren't like as it wasn't on the brain as much as it was just a few months previous. Um, so I felt like I needed to diversify the hour and that like little tool of going back to the callback was really useful because it reminds people what the theme is. It makes it feel complete while I'm still able to explore other things. 
Um, so, I mean, this was an interesting project just re with regards to like what the subject matter was about and trying to keep it like topical and up, up to date. How soon after your child is born, when you look at that child and either say or think, look, I love you for all the usual reasons, but man, you're now the source of new material. Thanks, pal. That's awesome. Before he was born. I mean, you know, I was writing stuff that even I didn't know what I was talking about. I was trying to imagine <laughs> like what it was going to be like. And I was also like thinking about the, just the process of, you know, having this child during the pandemic. Like it, uh, there was just so much to say. Some of it was just like, let me write thoughts down because this is such a wild time. But, um, you know, it, it's it's tricky because I think a comedian's brain, everything is potential material. Do you know what I mean? Like everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, every thought could be reused depending on how it's contextualized and stuff. So, I mean, I, I, it, it was, it's always there. So, you know, it was pretty immediate. It's hard though, you know, obviously in those early months, cause you're sleepless and exhausted and comedy was the last thing I was thinking about, but you know, all that <laughs> stuff, of course, I mean, the bigger tricks for me, the, the trickier thing for me, about was not so much the, like having this new material, but not knowing what was hacky and what wasn't because this was a completely new playing field like talking about being a father like i'd never delved into that subject before so if it's about race or if it's about you know bigger issues like i know my stuff i've been doing this a long time but i didn't want to go into territory that was well well trotted you know what i mean i didn't want to go into places where oh now he's a dad comic making dad jokes um, I still wanted to keep my voice and I wasn't sure what that looked like. So to me, the bigger challenge wasn't so much the the getting access to material, but what was actually new and interesting and hadn't been done. Like it was, it was very foreign to me. It's something I'm still figuring out as I go along. Uh, I understand, as always, the, the death of comedy is trying to analyze why a joke is funny. So we won't yeah. do that here. But let me just say, <laughs> and without, give, without giving away the bit, let me just say that the line in the special about uh, you wearing a doctor's mask and what that ah. does to your parents is one of the funniest things Thank I've ever you. heard. And so you do, as you just said, you do know your stuff. You have been doing this for a while. Do you know when you've got something good or is it still after all these years still kind of a mystery like, oh, will that line? I think that's funny, but will that line play or not? I mean, that one, I felt pretty good. Like, that was like a gut. Like, I have a feeling this is going to be a big one. And the second I said it, it was explosive, you know? You don't always know, though. There are times where I, I say something and I think it's a throwaway, and that's actually what the joke is. Or I've I've been in situations where, um, you know, I'm riffing and all of a sudden it comes out of, you know, comes out of me and it's, it's the funniest thing I said, despite all the stuff I wrote and thought was going to be great ahead of time. So... It's really hard. It's hard to tell. But I will say with some, you have a really strong gut feeling. At the same time, I've had really strong gut feelings. And then the joke does not work. And I'm just gutted on stage because I'm like, that, <laughs> ah, that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, because that, that's that's the thing with, uh, you know, with, with stand up, like you can be convinced that something like this is my voice. You know, this fits how I deliver jokes. This is exactly the kind of thing people historically have laughed at. This is what I enjoy telling, and it can still miss. 
You know what I mean? It's it's past analytics. It's one of the few things where uh, you can't look at numbers and all of a sudden, like, you know, like, I, I'm a huge sportsman. So just watching baseball, the science of it, as much as uh, I appreciate it as a nerd, I'm at, at the same time, I'm like, it's killed something romantic about it, right? Mm-hmm. With with art, especially with stand-up, um, I think there's still something romantic in, in that pain of like, I really don't know. Like, there is no, I'm playing the numbers. There is no, this is the most likely to work historically based on trends. Like, you go up there, you, you see what happens. If it doesn't work, you try a new way of doing it. If that doesn't work, you try a different way of doing it. And no one else can, can tell you how that's going to be. You know, you only have, you have to go up there and, and just, and take it. So there's something about that that I, I still love. But man, it's brutal. It is brutal. Before we get to the early years growing up in Queens and, and just how much joy you brought your parents by telling them, I believe at six years old, that you wanted to be a comedian uh, and their outburst of happiness at that uh, proclamation. Um, since you and I last talked, uh, you did the problem with that poop. Yeah. And it's, uh, that is a major piece of work, both in, it's a terrific piece of work, and any piece of work that makes us think is a good thing. And it actually had tangible effect uh, with Hank Azaria stopping doing the character. And then what I understand was eventually a conversation between the two of you. Um, it's now a couple of years and a lot has happened in your life since then. But uh, the beauty of a piece of art is that it, 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 it doesn't go away. And someone might discover that for the first time tonight and watch it and be affected by it. Any particular thoughts now that you've had a little bit of separation from it about that whole experience? You know, it, it's, it, I have a complicated feeling about it because um, on one hand, I'm, I am proud of it and I see the impact it has made, the conversations it has started, the fact it's used in college classrooms, the fact that, you know, it, it actually has become, uh, it's treated like a text when, when we're talking about uh, you know, media studies and representation and things like that. Like that's, that's great. Um, and at the same time, you know, when I made the the documentary, I didn't think it was all that controversial. I knew it was going to uh, press some buttons because it was a criticism of the Simpsons, which I'd never seen before, which was part of the appeal, I think, just because comedians are looking for things that haven't been discussed before, something that's unique and, and, and a point of view that other people uh, may share but haven't put out there in, a, in an artistic way. And so for me, it was like incredibly exciting uh, to do in that regard. But at the same time, the subject matter was kind of, for me, was generally kind of like done, like it was boring to me because like I talked about this forever, like growing up and early in my standup. So I'm like, you know, why am I still talking about that? And you realize that whatever, uh, wherever you have come with these issues, society is behind because like they weren't, you know, I wasn't allowed to talk for a long time. Right? Our, our, you know, brown people weren't allowed to have that space in the media to be funny and to be critical and to question what they saw. And so for me, it was like, you know, I understood the purpose of making this, you know, as almost a catch up, like we're catching up to where we should have been to begin with. And at the same time, I'm like, all right, like it's not to me the most interesting, but you know, then I'm gonna jump back into stand up and the stuff I actually do. I mean, what I didn't anticipate is that it was gonna make as much noise that it made globally 
that it would be the thing that I'd be known for and that I would be getting death threats and all these things from people who haven't even seen the documentary. You know, I, I totally underestimated how, I don't think it's underestimated. I think I misunderstood uh, the media landscape. I don't think I understood that you don't need to actually know what you're talking about to talk about it. Like you, as long as people think they know what you're saying, if they just watch the trailer or if they read in another article what they think the thing is about, then it doesn't matter what the truth is. You know, you're going to fall into a template of uh, this is what's wrong with America, political correctness. Uh, you know, nobody can say anything anymore. You know, this is the same stuff. And, you know, that was frustrating and disappointing. And it's still something I'm dealing with. You know, I'm still having people send me, you know, nasty messages or, 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 or that becomes the thing that, it, you know, I'm known for when it's like, oh, man, it's it's the thing I'm like least interested in, to be perfectly honest, because it's such an old topic for me. There's so much more to explore. And it's like such an old thing, you know, so um, it's it's a really it's a mixed bag. It's it's very much yeah. a mixed bag for me. You, you're a guy who brings joy into the world through laughter, lots of it, and also really thoughtful stuff. Is there any way one ever gets accustomed to getting death threats? <laughs> um, and I mean, a lot of them, you know, the, I realized the global reach of The Simpsons since so much of it was in Spanish uh, and it was mostly from South America and Central America. So, you know, there is something amusing about Google translating a death threat like you never get used to that, but at the same time, there is something really amazing about like what terrible thing was said to me by this Argentinian, or like oh this is Portuguese. Wow, it, it you know the word made its way to Brazil. Um, so you know there's definitely humor in that. Um, you don't get used to it, but you definitely you know I, I still find that kind of absurd and amusing. Um, but no, you know it was it was weird having extra security at shows over a documentary about a cartoon. It was weird. Um, you know, having to be a little bit more cautious online for a brief period, like, I, you know, I, I, it just, it's disappointing because the goal was to have a public conversation and, you know, conversations don't work well when you're explaining your point of view and the other side says, well, I'm going to kill you. Well then, you know, we don't, we can't, we don't have much to talk about because we're going to disagree on that. Can you recall the first time you started to learn that your line about, and I won't say the exact line, but uh, swimming while drowning was right. being used on posters. I believe it was first during the Eric Garner protests. That's right. Because comedians' lines get repeated by people who love comedy, and I'm one of them, because you saw their show or you saw them on Letterman and so on. But the notion of something you created being a calling card during a social protest, uh, that's pretty rare, rarefied air, I would think, for a comedian. Shocking. Like, not at all what I expected. Because that was, you know, I, I, what I said, to paraphrase, I, don't, I haven't said it in a long time, was um, saying I'm obsessed with racism is like saying I'm obsessed with swimming when I'm drowning. And it was a setup for a longer piece I was doing about, uh, this is back in like 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. Um, 
a longer piece about like white people being the minority and, you know, the idea that who's really obsessed with race since I'm not the ones who are looking at the census numbers constantly. I'm not the one who's talking about when white people, uh, white people will be the minority. Like to me, that is a non-issue. Um, and so it was really just a setup. It was a line I thought was, okay, this is a well-written line that makes my point. Um, and then all of a sudden I saw that line, you know, put in a poster on online and passed around, which, you know, that happens. Like you get words and, you know, it was, credited and somebody puts up a thing that gets passed around. But then when I actually saw it written on poster boards and held at marches and rallies and, um, you know, kind of representing what a lot of people felt in those moments, I, uh, it's a surreal feeling and it makes you feel like the work you do is, is worth doing. Um, you know, my usually success for me is judged in laughter. Like that's my preferred gauge. But that, you know, seeing my words in that capacity made me feel like I succeeded in a very different way. And that I actually gave people something that was maybe, you know, as useful as laughter is and that catharsis is something that was actually usable and, and powerful um, in a movement. You know, I saw that sign pop up, sadly, whenever uh, a person, you know, a black person was killed by the police. I saw that that quote, you know, I saw it at different memorials. I saw that at protests. I, I it it, um, it resonated with a lot of people. And certainly that was not my intention. But it's it's an incredible feeling, you know, as a. Regardless of comedian, when you're in a public space, to me, it's a reminder that you have impact, positive and negative, uh, based on what you say and what you put out there. And that's you know got a po- you know that was received positively by a lot of people, and I think it was connected to a lot of people in a way that I did not anticipate. So, how old were you growing up in Queens when you turned to your mom and said, "Yeah, I think I'd like to be a comedian." First time I said it, I was probably six, seven, eight, something like that. I, I was watching a show. Um, I forgot what it was called, but it was hosted by Dave Coulier, and it was on Nickelodeon. It was like a, you know, it was it, he would say, cut it out. And that was his catchphrase, and kids would find it really funny, and I thought it was hilarious. And he, he was a stand-up <laughs> comic. And so I thought to myself, this doesn't seem that hard, um, and I, I want to do it. <laughs> Which I, I don't mean to insult Dave Coulier, but in that context, like what he was doing wasn't like, oh, I can do this. Who can do this? I remember mm-hmm. saying to my mom, I want to be a stand up comedian. And her, she didn't even hesitate. She was like, never say that again. It was like a gut, like her, her, her she had a gut reaction, like nah, absolutely not. Like, and she might have said that for anything I said that wasn't like Dr. Lawyer, but like still, it was, it was, it was clear. And then, you know, I, I did comedy through high school and I loved it and through college and it was certainly a hobby I put a lot of time into, you know, it was a passion. And uh, after college, I said to her, this is the first time I brought up the topic again, since I was like six or seven, like, I'd like to pursue this. I'd like to make a, a, you know, a chance, like a stab at it and see if I can make a career out of it. And the anger that she had, she's like, absolutely not. Like, there are no Indians who do this. Like, it's, 
why would you take a risk? And, you know, the idea of a, a gap year to figure it out wasn't really in her you know, thinking. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't have that support initially. And what it, what happened was, you know, I went to Seattle to work as an immigrant rights organizer doing comedy at night. And then all of a sudden, like I'm on TV, I have a manager, I'm I'm successful without really pursuing it. And at that point, you know, my folks were a lot more support. I also got a master's degree after I got on TV. So I think after that, they felt a sense of like, okay, he's done well without like giving it his all. Plus he's done what we've asked him to do, which is get a degree and have a fallback. And the fact that he's not walking into this without some success, like he's he's already proven that like there is a demand um, they became incredibly supportive. And and you could say on one hand, well, yeah, it's easy to be supportive after the success, but it, it, it wasn't because like I was struggling for a few years trying to figure out how to make this work. Even when you end up on television, it doesn't guarantee anything. It's not like the old days of you're on Johnny Carson and a sitcom is waiting for you, right? Mm-hmm. Those were the stories, right? That was, you know, that was like a, the... The comedian version of America is paved with gold, you know, like you go on Carson and your career starts. And so it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Like with with stand up, like it's um, it's a oftentimes it's accumulating television appearances. It's accumulating people seeing you. It's hoping you get that big thing, but you're constantly just working. And I don't think I understood that. And so I was living deep in Queens with my parents going to Park Slope and going to the Lower East Side and going throughout the city, really, you know, and performing at clubs and bombing and not getting much stage time. And I'm like, well, I'm on, I've been on TV. Don't 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 people want to book me? And they were incredibly supportive and they had my back. And, you know, my mom said, if you want to quit, you can quit, but not yet. Like you don't quit things until you you finish, until you try, until you give it your you've never quit anything in your life. If you're going to stop doing this, you're going to stop after you you give it some time. Like you've been doing this six months and you're complaining already. And it, it took a few years. It took probably, you know, two or three years before things actually felt like, oh, OK, OK, I'm getting a few bookings. I'm building a little momentum. But, you know, two or three years might not seem like a, a lot if, you know, you've been doing this a lifetime and this is your goal. But when you had a different path in mind, when you have parents who certainly can't sacrificed a lot for you and also you live in new york so it's not like i'm doing this out of sight i'm doing it in the the biggest comedy city in the world um you know there's a there's a different kind of pressure to that so i'm I'm really grateful to to them because i'm sure there was a lot of family friends and relatives that were giving them weird looks and they they stood their ground like he's going to try this he's good first of all how beautiful is that 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 right. evolution in them from don't even talk about this to yes don't you dare think about quitting that's a beautiful story right in and of itself second of all uh did you have a plan b during those early years when it yeah. wasn't working out so great early years i just figured i'd go back into the workforce you know if anything when you put in your special skills you have oh i've been on television oh he's a great public speaker like, I, I just assumed I can go back into organizing, right? People could always use a, a set of hands and, and someone who can and do the work. You know, I was going to immigrant detention centers and I was working with families. Like, you know, I, I love that work. I still find that work incredibly, like, powerful and admirable and 
whenever I get called an activist, I really don't like it in part because I know people who actually do the work, who actually get paid part time for full time work because the job is always full time because it's it's your it's your life. And so, um, you know, I imagined going back into that at this point, like, I, you know, I for years I gave myself a three year extension and then I'd review my like, now should I still be doing this at this point? Like, I don't think I could go back into the world. I don't think I have. Uh, I barely know how to use Excel. Like, there's just there's. <laughs> I feel like I, I'm at this point. I'm 40 years old, and this is this is what I do. You know, I mean, there's other things in the world, in the field. You know, in in the world of entertainment, I can do. In the world of media, I could do. But this is kind of what I'm most trained for. Yeah, you're doing what you should be doing, and you do it well. Thank you. Uh, as always, the London School of Economics, when, when you say comedy, I mean, the London School, it's just synonymous with the notion of uh, stand-up comedy. And, and I was just thinking about this, actually. I didn't put two and two together before, but um, so Mick Jagger went to the London School of Economics. I was about to say, yeah. And, and he's done okay in his uh, right. other field, and, 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 and you are as well. So it's like you and Mick just, you know, here's... I wonder if the I mean, London School of Economics, you know, when they try and I don't know if they need to bring people in to like recruit people, but they could say, here's what some of our graduates are doing. Oh, they're not bringing me up, bud. They're not. They're bringing Mick Jagger up. <laughs> they're bringing Mick Jagger up as their wild card, but uh, they're not like, but we also do this. Like, this is still a fun place. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm definitely not brought up. Um, but, you know, you know, it, it was it was a kind of a surreal year. It kind of feels very disconnected from everything else my life was before and after. Uh, I also learned that being funny in one country doesn't necessarily translate to being funny in another. You know, like I think the, the assumption is, well, they all speak English and they know American stuff. But you start to realize that, like, sensibilities are different. And it was the first time when I when I was out there, I realized, oh, I'm an American. Like I think yeah. like an American, I see comedy like an American. I, I process the world like an American. And you know, when I'm talking, it's not that they don't see a person of color, but the first thing they're seeing is actually an American, which was surreal. It was like, you know, I'm an American talking to you, and so it's it was very confusing where I'm used to being the character who is like in in the, you know i'm non-white and this is the experience it's like you're not white but you're also an american and that's what we find more fascinating so um you know that year as, as much as I, i'm appreciative of all i learned about human rights because I've, I've got a master's in human rights i also uh got a lot of humility which is also a very useful thing it's funny when we find out that we're americans and that's uh Stephen Van Zant once told me the story about he's on tour with the the band in 1980 or 81 in Germany, and someone saying to him, a fan is saying to him, "Why are you putting missiles in my country?" Yeah, and he said, "I'm a guitar player. What are you talking to me about?" And they said, "No, no, no. America's putting missiles in my country." And Stephen all of a sudden thought, "Wow, I'm an American. Like yeah. we may be dentists and reporters and writers and guitar players, but when we travel overseas." We're Americans. We're all ambassadors of the place we're from. And it, right. it is, I mean, I was in uh, London during the, the Bush era, the Iraq war. Like, you know, I had to answer a lot of questions. I mean, and, I, and I'll say, I, I not once told them I was Canadian. I had friends say they were Canadian. I did not chicken out. I was like, let's talk about it. You know, I, I could have done the easy route, but I didn't. 
Uh, you did a really cool film, uh, I think it was in 2007, playing a character who was telling stereotypical South Asian jokes. Yeah. And I remember you telling me it was based on the fact that early on, you had done many of those jokes. And so I'm curious, is that something, as you're getting started, you feel like you need to tell these jokes in order to make people laugh, even though it maybe internally makes you uncomfortable? Or was that kind of a stand-up comedy version of, as Asif Manvi puts it, patanking? Of, I definitely, you know, I, a, a, as an actor, you know, adopting that accent, even though you don't want to do it because that's going to get you a role. Oh, it's definitely patanking. I mean, th- that's definitely, but initially I, it was definitely patanking, but I don't think I was aware of it initially because when you're, I started when I was 17 and the world outside of New York was very hazy. Like I, I, the norm to me was New York City. So I knew there was something different based on what I was watching on television. Oh, the world doesn't look like home. But, you know, I don't think I really understood about like the things I put out into the world, the impact, like I was 17. And so for me, stand-up comedy, like when I was doing it, like who were my examples of of brown people being funny? It was Apu. It was like whatever South Asian stereotypes I saw. You know what I mean? Like it was whenever I saw an Indian act on SNL or or, or some other movie or show, like, I'm like, okay, this is what people find funny. And so the early stuff was very much in that vein. Okay, well, I'm an actual human and, I, and I'll bring that out into my, on stage and I'll get laughs. And when you're starting stand-up, especially silence, silence is still terrifying, but silence when you're starting, when your joke doesn't hit, you've, you're lost. You're absolutely, you don't know what to do. And so for me, like, you know, I did what I had to do. And that was the thing, you do what you have to do to make people laugh. And, you know, that changed over time. And I started questioning, why am I doing this? And is it worth it? But, you know, that didn't happen, you know, right off the bat. So when I made that short film, it was a few things. I mean, first of all, it was that. It was the idea that I used to do this stuff. But the primary reason I made that short film, Minoj, was, um, you know, thinking about Apu and thinking about the idea of what people expect of you on stage. And what I've seen other comics do, including myself, which was like give use the lowest common denominator of stereotypes for the purpose of laughter, using the voice, like not really having truth in your own experience, but what people assume your experience is. And, you know, that's another reason why, like when I made the problem with the poo, I was kind of bored with the subject because I'd already addressed it years earlier with this short film in 2007, 2008, you know, like that short film in 12 minutes, I think did a much better job of explaining my point of view than that documentary hour long documentary did. I think it was much more of like show don't say, right? Like you, you, you show the issue. You don't have, you don't, you know, the, the other one was maybe necessarily didactic for the purpose of like, it's an intro. It's a primer to this issue of, of minstrelsy and, and South Asian, you know, uh, stereotypes, but that short film to me, that's art doing the work. And uh, it, it explained, you know, because I'm playing this double role of this stereotypical comic and myself, you know, I'm playing a before and after to some degree of like, this is the kind of stuff I used to do, but I'm also playing like, this is what I hate in comedy. This is what I don't like to see. I don't like, you know, human beings being simplified into caricatures. I want to see full human experiences, including my own. And I did that in 12 minutes, which I'm still incredibly proud of. Um, mm-hmm. and it, that's why I think it's frustrating. Cause I'm like, 
this documentary, as much as I appreciate it, like as an artist, I covered the ground when I was 23. Like, why am I still talking about this? Uh, when I first met you about seven, eight years ago, uh, you said uh, that Queens, the place where you're from, is basically what many people in the rest of the country are afraid of. Uh, Absolutely. Well, it's a good thing we've good thing we got that figured out in the last eight years. <laughs> uh, uh, we're all products to a certain extent of the places where we come from. Uh, that notion that you come from a place where you can hear any language, and just as importantly, if not more importantly, taste any type of wonderful food, does it still have a tangible effect on the work you do today? Hundred percent. When I went to college up in Maine, and then, you know, I lived in Seattle, when I moved back to New York, I think I was grounded again in, like, uh, the feeling of, you know, there, there's something about being in places where you're the minority and it's clear. Because you're always thinking about the white gaze, right? The idea of, like, how am I being looked at by white people? How am I being judged? What do I need to do to adjust, either for safety, either to fit in, to whatever reason? In New York, I don't think about that because it, it, you know, because everybody's from every. It's not to say there aren't white people, but even the white people here don't say they're white. They say like, "Oh, I'm Irish," or "I'm I'm German and Italian," and my mom's. You know, there's there's an ownership here which has always made me feel comfortable because it, it never felt like I alone was the outsider. It felt like, well, your family's from somewhere too, and you know, the question "Where are you from?" here is very different than that question outside of New York. Because when you say that here, it's a shared back and forth because I can ask you where you're from and you're not going to say, well, I'm just white. I've never heard a New Yorker say that to me ever. At, 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 like they'll, they'll say, well, I'm a mutt and they'll give the fractions, but they're not going to. Nobody ever says I'm just white. That doesn't make any sense. That's what you say in the Midwest. You don't say that in New York. In New York, you you go through the history. And you turned it into a funny bit about, you know, you ask that of a white person. You get that's a, right. Problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's abs. I mean, it used to always crack me up until I left New York and I realized, oh, a lot of people don't actually know their history. They don't know how many generations they've been here. They don't know who came from where they don't. They just don't know. And in New York, it always felt like people had some sense of it or people could name countries or people could say my great grandfather. There was always some sense of like you have a story and I have a story and our stories are different. And they're from different times. But you know, this is my, everybody had their story. It, it was, it was, a, it's not to say that I didn't feel racism. It's not to say that whiteness didn't exist. And it's not to say any of those things, but it is to say it's much more complex here and it's much more multidimensional. And it's, you know, th- we have very well-versed racists in New York. We have racists <laughs> who, 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 at least when they're making fun of us, they know specifics about the culture. Um, you know, and I'm half joking when I say that, but there there is a degree of like, you know, uh, you you can't help but absorb some of it in, and it's a it's a pretty beautiful thing. And so when people are afraid of what their place is going to be, it's kind of like it's absurd to me because it's like you've already lost like what your culture historically was. Like you lost it through immigration, you lost it through assimilation. You know. And you've created a new thing and it's, it's what your culture is. But even that has been mixed up. Like when people talk about like, you know, Mexican invasion and all this stuff, I'm like, look at the architecture of Arizona and New Mexico. What are you talking about? Like, look at the, 
the multiple language. Look at the food you're eating. Like you're already in a multicultural place. It was it was built on that. You think a hot dog is an intrinsically American idea? Like none of this came from nowhere. So, you know, uh, and also even when I hear people talk about like, you know, when you hear white supremacists talk about whiteness, it's like sad because it's like you do realize all the countries that you claiming are white were at war with each other for centuries. Like they would not agree that they're all the same. They would not agree that they're all from one source. They would strongly disagree with you. So, you know, whatever people are fearing to me, it's like it comes from ignorance, but it's like growing up in New York, like is there's something really beautiful about having the world at your doorstep. And there's something about it also that makes you a lot more fearless when you travel to different places. You've met so many different types of people. You've learned about so many different types of life experience. You've tried so many different types of food. What are you afraid of? The people I'm afraid of are the people that are are ignorant and don't even see that as a viable way to live. That's what I'm afraid of. You're doing it and you're doing it well. And you're in the middle, uh, middle, you're in, in your career and, uh, and you're speaking to people and you're making them laugh and you're also making them think, uh, I remember again, Asif Manvi once told me that when he was growing up, Omar Sharif was a huge deal to him because finally he saw someone yeah. who was a brown man and he was in movies and he was on yeah. TV and his parents pointed out, yeah, one guy. Yeah, one yeah, guy. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what are the odds that you can do this too? One guy. And he's like, okay. I'm imagining that when you had that, as you have put it, you got bitten by the comedy bug early on, you yeah. were not seeing yourself or someone who looked like you on TV. I mean, now, Asif was one of those guys, ironically enough, for me. Right. And I told him that when I met him, which is embarrassing now that we're friends and it's been a decade plus of friendship. Like, you know, when I was 14, 15, 16, um, Asif had a solo show called Sakina's Restaurant. And there were handbills around Indian stores or wherever like brown people lived in New York City advertising the show. And I'd seen it, you know, for a while. And when I was like 17, I finally decided to go me and my friends. It was the last ever, uh, you know, the last ever show of it because he was ending the run. This is 2000, I think, 99 or 2000. And we ended up not having enough seats for all of us to go. So we didn't go. But I held on to that poster on my college dorm wall and after, because to me, it was like, this is an example of someone to me who made it, who pursued their dream, who was making art. And I didn't know what happened to Asif after that. I, I, I didn't follow his career other than like knowing this guy had done, has done theater. And then I put on the daily show and he shows up. I couldn't believe it. Cause I was watching the daily show every night. And all of a sudden me and my friends were, we see this guy and I'm like, you don't understand. This is, Asif Manvi, like this guy was one of the heroes of my childhood. He was somebody who told me it was possible. And he's just, he's a correspondent on The Daily Show now, the biggest show in the country at the time. So it, it's funny that, you know, you mentioned Omar Sharif and Asif, because Asif to me was was one of those figures. Him, Cal Penn, like there was a handful, but like Asif was somebody first who I saw. And I'm like, the fact he has the guts to do this, the fact he's not even on television, and he's still making it happen. It, it always gave me a, a just a little bit of courage I didn't have. And how about the notion that now you might be that person to some 
14-year-old kid who happens upon your work? Well, I am that person. I've heard it, and I hate it. It's awful. It makes me feel old. You're, I'm only <laughs> 40. I, I, I think I'm still in the prime of my career, and I have 22-year-olds uh, saying, I used to watch you in middle school. You're the reason I started. You're my dad's favorite comic. You know, <laughs> It's like at a certain point, it's no, you know, like to me, I, what I want to say is save it for the documentary when I'm dead. How about we wait until <laughs> that comes out? Like right now, I'm, I'm still actively pursuing art. Um, I understand it. And I'm sure it's what Asa felt when I was going on and on about his impact. But, you know, nobody wants to feel, uh, you know, no, nobody wants to feel dated. I appreciate being, you know, somebody who has had a positive influence in my community and for others who decided to pursue stand up and art. And I appreciate that the stuff I did, like, you know, has so much respect amongst uh, people in my community, particularly artists. But, you know, I. 40's not supposed to be that old. Why, why are you talking to me like uh, I'm your grandfather? Save it for the Kennedy Center honor. Right. <laughs> when I get honored by the Museum of Television Radio, the Paley Center, that's when you can sing my praises. Uh, right now, I'm still like a working performer, still you know pursuing my next hour. So, you know, I appreciate it, but it's a very, it's a very weird feeling, bud. Understood but I'm going to sing the praises now. You're doing the work. It's really great. It's really clever. And the notion that, you know, some young kid can look at it and say and feel better about doing it. And you get points in life for that. Man. I appreciate that, but I really do. And thank you. I mean, and honestly, uh, I've told this to you before, but like, obviously you're, you're a legend in the city. So, you know, I appreciate the fact you asked me to do your podcast. All right. Well, now we're talking. Now we, now we can actually. <laughs> now we can start the interview. <laughs> Hurry Kondabolu. His new comedy special and album is Vacation Baby. It's available for viewing worldwide free on YouTube and streaming as an album on all platforms. Hurry is also the executive producer of a film about immigration and the rise of the far right in the U.S. and Germany called From Here. And he's on tour. You can check out tour dates at his website. HurryKondabolu.com. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.